on CNN this week, CNN.com actually, they ran a poll to see what it is that people could no longer live without in this digital age. And so I got online and I started looking at all of the gadgets that were listed there and I started to list them. And there were certain things on there that I can't imagine living without in my life. Some of you may do all right without them, but it's hard for me to imagine my life without it. One is the computer. Just difficult for me to imagine my daily life without that computer in place. I do sermon research on it. I do communications on it. I set up meetings here at church. I handle situations that come up at church. I look up interesting things on the Internet. I find information that I need. It's hard for me to imagine my life without a computer. It's hard to imagine my life without a cell phone. Anybody ever leave your cell phone somewhere and you feel like you don't know how you're going to live? Anybody ever do that? Right. I I have uh, upgraded my phone from just a basic cell phone to now I have a cell phone that gives me my email when I'm on the run. So if I'm not in my computer, I can get it while I'm out driving. Uh, It takes pictures. It serves the Internet. It does all that stuff. And so I can't imagine living without my cell phone. And this week, I purchased a new device. That may become quickly one of those things I'll have a hard time living without. This week, I officially stepped into the world of the global positioning system. A GPS. It is an amazing thing. Right? If I had my GPS with me right now, which I don't, it's in the vehicle, kind of where it's supposed to be. It doesn't do much good walking around the church. It doesn't tell me where to go. I could pull up any restaurant around this area and it would tell me exactly how many miles it was to it and how to get there. Now, Susan and I have begun to use it, and we really hadn't taken any long trips. And she says, Lyle, I already know how to get back to the apartment. Why does it have to tell me? But I can see how useful it's going to be. And I think back to my days before the GPS system, like last Sunday. Now, I think back to when we would take trips, and, and on those trips, the only thing that we had to navigate with, the only thing that was our guide, was our trusty Rand McNally map. I don't know about y'all, but my father-in-law, this is one of those interesting things that I learned in their family, always kept the map under a specific chair's cushion in the living room. No reason for that. But one day when we couldn't find it, the chair had been moved to another house, we found it in the chair in the other house. I told you a couple of weeks ago about me going on a ski trip to Paoli, Indiana, with Susan and some friends from college one year during a winter break. And Paoli from Jackson was about five hours, and we only had one day to ski, so we thought we would be wise and cut the trip in half. Susan has family that live in Paducah, Kentucky, and so we went to Paducah and we spent the night there. Uh, There were several of us there spread around a couple houses, different places, and got up early the next morning and took off for Paoli. Well, I was the official navigator. I was in the navigator seat. I had the navigator tool of the Rand McNally. We were driving in a nice vehicle. Susan and a couple of ladies were behind us. Me and the guy that was, that, uh, another one of the guys I was with was driving. We're in the front seat. We were in tra- control of navigation. About an hour in, into the trip, a little longer, Susan in the back says, now remember, we were not even dating yet. I'm trying to impress her. She says, I think we're going the wrong way. 
My response is, we are not going the wrong way. I have seen it here on the map. We're on the right road. We're going the right direction. Everything tells me we are going the wrong way. She said the right way. She just says, all I'm saying is I think we're going the wrong way. About five minutes later, another lady in the back seat says, are y'all sure we're going the right way? I am sure we're going the right way. There is no doubt in my mind. I have looked at the map. I know we're going the right way. This is the way we've got to go to get to Paoli, Indiana. None of you have ever been to Paoli, Indiana. You don't know how to get there. The map tells me how to get there. We know we're going the right way. About five minutes later, we see a sign on the road that says, Welcome to Tennessee. And I said, I think we're going the wrong way. Now, here's what happened in that moment. We had to realize on a moment's notice, we had to make a U-turn, right? We had to go the complete opposite direction. That we had started out on a path that we thought was right, that we thought would get us where we needed to go, that we thought was somewhere that was exactly what we needed to be doing when suddenly we found out we were on the wrong path completely. Now, I would ask this morning if you've ever been there on the road but I probably need to just ask the wives, have your husbands ever made a wrong turn? Let me see your hands, wives. Good. If I ask the husbands, none of them want to admit it, but the wives will. In the book of Jonah, we've come to a point when he realizes, even though he thought he was on the right direction, he thought he was going the way to get away from God, he suddenly realizes he's wrong. Take your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. Let's do a quick review while you're turning there. Three quick points to remind us of where we are. First of all, God spoke to Jonah. We have this story in Scripture where it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And so we have this understanding that God spoke to Jonah. The second thing that happens is Jonah runs away. Immediately upon hearing God's word, he goes and he gets a boat and he goes the opposite direction. He tries to get as far away from God as he can. And the last thing we see is that in spite of the fact that Jonah tried to run away, God is relentless in his pursuit of Jonah. That he will not let him get away. If you remember last week, Jonah tries to get away. Jonah gets in the boat. Jonah begins to sail towards Tarshish. And suddenly it says that God hurls a storm at the boat. And while the boat is tossed and turned and everything's going on and everything's kind of messed up, suddenly they realize that Jonah's the problem. And Jonah says, just throw me overboard. So they throw Jonah overboard. And when they do, it says the Lord provided a great fish, a whale, whatever the, the, the technical word is there. It is great fish. But whatever the being was, he brought something to swallow Jonah for three days and three nights. So we have in this story where we left it last week, Jonah in the belly of a whale. Now let's just talk for a minute about that. I mentioned last week that there may not be any more attacked verse in all of Scripture than that one about its truthfulness. And what has happened is on both sides of the argument, people try to go full force to prove it or full force to 
disprove it. And either way you go, there, there are all these arguments and stuff. I mean, you may have heard about the, the guy in 1891 named James Bartley who has claimed that he was thrown overboard and was swallowed and was in a fish or a whale for three days and three nights and then got, got vomited out, much like the story of Jonah. And while that story would be helpful... If it were true, and I'm not saying it is or it isn't, there's no log from the ship, there's no diary from the ship, there's no record from the ship of it ever happening. It's just this one man's account. Here's my thing. I don't need any other testimony to whether or not it happened than the word of the Lord that is given to me in the book of Jonah. All I know is Scripture tells me that God sent something to rescue Jonah. And it is as believable to me here as it would be if it said that a piece of driftwood came up and, and Jonah latched onto it and God sent it to take him to shore. Or that God gave him supernatural strength to be able to swim to shore. It doesn't matter to me the method that God uses. God, it says in Scripture, sends people, animals, items to rescue us in our distress. Now, here's the reason that I don't have a problem dealing with this. is because I'm not sure that it makes the top ten miracles in the Bible. There is that part about a donkey talking, right? Right? There is that part about Moses stepping into a seat and it parts. There is the story about Elijah being on top of a mountain and fire coming down and consuming and killing everything. There is that part about Jesus walking on water. There's that part about Jesus turning water into wine. There's that part about Jesus healing various diseases. There's that part about Jesus dying for our sins on a cross. There's that part about Jesus coming again from the grave. The greatest miracle in all of Scripture. And when I believe that Jesus rose again from the grave, I have to believe that there are other miracles that are possible. And I don't need scientific evidence that it happened. All I need is the Word of God. And you know, if if you wonder, well, is this a book that just kind of got in there? It is mentioned in the Gospels, and the person that talks about it is Jesus. And Jesus does say, just as Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days, so shall the Son of Man be in the earth. And arise again. So you have at the beginning of this that God is still in pursuit, that Jonah is in the whale. And in Jonah 1.17, that verse that we left last week, it's on your handout. It's, if you've got your Bibles open to Jonah 2, it's right there. It says, the Lord arranged or provided or sent a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. And we move from that to Jonah chapter 2. Now, I'll be honest with you. There are times in Scripture when I wish there was more explanation given. I would like to know what Jonah did in the belly of the fish. I would like to know how he spent those three days and those three nights, but it doesn't tell us. I would like to know the things that went on in his mind, but it doesn't give us that. What I do know is that it tells us he was in there three days and three nights. And it tells us at the end of chapter 2 that when he prayed this prayer, God listened and the whale vomited him out. Well, this is what I know. Then it took Jonah some time to come to his senses in the belly of the fish. 
I want you to think about that for a minute. I would think that being swallowed by a fish would be enough to get my attention. Right? I would think that throwing me overboard, thinking I'm dead, that it would be enough to get my attention that suddenly this fish swallows me. But apparently for Jonah, it wasn't. Apparently for Jonah, it took him three days and three nights before he came to his senses and began to pray to God in this way. Because Scripture, while it doesn't give us, doesn't give us the, the, this uh, explicitly, seems to suggest that when Jonah finally came to his senses, he prayed this prayer, God answered immediately, he was out of the fish. And I say to myself, I think that it would be a wake-up call for me to be swallowed by a fish. But then I think about my own life and how many times God has sent wake-up calls to me and I've ignored them. I mean, there's a real chance that some of you in this room have had a wake-up call from God this week. That something has happened in your life, in your family, in your finances, in your workplace, in your spiritual life, in your health, in your circumstances. Something has happened and it has been a wake-up call that should cause you to say, it's time for me to wake up and stop playing games and stop, stop trying to do the church thing and try to do the good Christian thing and to begin to live passionately devoted to Jesus Christ and what he's called me to do. But the truth is many of us will have those wake-up moments and they will quickly pass. I know it's the middle of January, and this is not the appropriate time to talk about New Year's resolutions. Right? Because most of you are done with them. But the truth is many of us treat wake-up moments like New Year's resolutions. We go hard after it for a couple of days, but then it begins to wane. I think, and this is Holy Spirit-inspired speculation, all right? I think that Jonah was mad while he was in the whale. I think he thought he was going to die. And that was fine with him because he didn't have to go to Nineveh then. He didn't have to go back and do what God called him to do. And so he told the sailors, just throw me overboard. I'm not going to pray to God. I'm not going to say anything to him. You just throw me overboard. I fully believe that if God would have, if Jonah would have repented on that boat, if Jonah would have called out to God on that boat, then God may have saved him from this fish. But he rejected. No, just throw me in. And he got thrown in. And I can just see Jonah now in the belly of that whale go, I was trying to die, God. I thought it was over. This week I read in the book of Job where Job has, you know that story where Job and, uh, is in, called in this battle between Satan and God and, and Satan takes away all this stuff but he still praises God. But in the midst of that there's a moment when Jonah utters these words. Verse 17 of chapter 7 of the book of Job says, What is man that you make so much of him that you give him so much attention? What am I that you examine me every morning and test me every moment? And this is what I think Jonah would have been feeling the same thing that Job felt. Verse 19. Will you never look away from me and leave me alone for an instant? See, here's the thing. 
That verse in scriptures that says that he will always be with us, he will never leave us nor forsake us, it's one of those most comforting verses in scripture unless you're outside the will of God. Because then it becomes a convicting thing. And so Jonah's in the belly of the big fish, the belly of the whale, for three days, three nights. And at the end of that time, he is finally a broken man, and he decides it's time to come back to God. So what do you do when you get there? What do you do when everything else has failed, when you know that what it, you've been running from God and you've tried everything you can to get away from it, but you come to that point where finally you say, God, it, it is time to come back to you. What do you do? Let's look at Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head, to the roots of the mountain I sank down, the earth beneath me barred me forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, O Lord, and my prayer rose to you, your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit their grace that could be theirs. But I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Let me give you four things this morning that you run back to God with. If you're going to come back to God, four things that you're going to come back to. First of all, you need to run back with prayer. Notice that it says in chapter 2, from the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And he said, it lists in there, the rest of the chapter is really a prayer except for verse 10. So from verse uh, 2 through 9, you really have a description of prayer. For eight verses, the prayer is mentioned. And in the midst of that, we understand that Jonah knew that when he came to his senses, when he needed those directions, when he realized he had gone the wrong direction and needed to make a U-turn, the first step in returning is to pray. Now look how Jonah prayed. First of all, he prayed at the right time. Now sometimes as preachers, we get on to people for despair praying. Saying you only come to the Lord when you're in despair. You only come to the Lord when you're in trouble. But here's what I see throughout Scripture. That doesn't mean when you're in trouble, you don't need to go to the Lord. If you look throughout Scripture, when people got in very serious problems, they went to the Lord. And what happens in Jonah's life, he gets down in the belly of the big fish, he gets down in the middle of it, and at that moment he realizes he needed to have a prayer meeting. And so he begins to pray. So he prayed at the right time to the right God. Notice what it says in verse 1 again. The Lord, inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Remember last week we talked about that part of the problem was that Jonah had a broken relationship with God. He wouldn't even mention him by name. He wouldn't even call out to him. He wouldn't even go to him. What we see in Scripture here is that when Jonah begins to pray, he says, no matter what it's going to mean, I'm going to come back to the Lord and I'm going to come to him in prayer and it's going to re-energize that relationship with him. 
He comes back at the right time to the right God with the right words. Now, here's an interesting thing, and we're not going to rehash all of them, but in those few Scripture verses, we see references to all kinds of psalms. According to what I have calculated here, there are eight references to the book of Psalms in his prayer. Now, I'm going to run through them quick. If you want them later, you can ask me. You don't have to, if you write down as many as you can, but I can give these to you later. But just so you'll know, in in verse 2 of chapter 2, there are references to Psalm 18.6 and Psalm 120, verse 1, and Psalm 86, verse 13, all of which talking about that in my distress I called and you delivered me from the depths. In, in, in chapter 2, verse 3, there's reference to Psalm 88, 6 and Psalm 42, 7. In verse 4, there's a reference to Psalm 31, 22. In verse 5, there's a reference to Psalm 69, verse 1 and 2. In, in verse 6, there's a reference to Psalm 30, verse 3. All that to say is, there is not, as far as I can tell, an original word of Jonah in the entire prayer. He borrowed it all. Now, in our world today, some professors would call that plagiarism. In Scripture, it calls it a good prayer. And what you have to realize is Jonah was a prophet that knew the Word of God. I mentioned to you a a couple of times that that part of what I try to do is read through the Bible in different ways each year. And and this year I'm reading through the uh, the one-year chronological Bible. And so you start at the book of Genesis, start in Genesis 1-1, and go through as it would appear in time. And at the moment, I'm in the middle of Job, and that's why Job's story is fresh on my mind. But, but it just in the last week or so, we, I've gone through the book of Genesis and the book of Job and, and all that is happening there. And here's the amazing thing about it. Is that I read, as I read that scripture, scriptures that I've read over and over again, as I continue to put my life into them, it just seems that my life brings situations where those scriptures apply on a more regular basis. And Jonah probably thought of those verses in Psalm differently than he thought of it when he was in the belly of the big fish. When suddenly he says, I'm now in the depths, I'm now needing rescue, I'm now in distress. So those words take on a new meaning to me. He prays at the right time to the right God with the right words. And here's the last thing, in the right way. What we see in this passage is that he comes with prayer in faith. Whenever you get to that moment in your life when you realize that it is, you've got to make a U-turn, you've got to turn around, you've got to do something different, and you wonder how in the world are you going to do it, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to run back with prayer. The second thing you've got to do is you've got to run back with hope. Run back with hope. Now, if you look throughout this passage of Scripture, you'll see over and over again how that it, it, it talks about this, this, whole, uh, this whole issue of that I was in despair, but you have rescued. I didn't know what was going to happen, but you brought me. I was in the engulfing waters, the deep surrounding me, the seaweed around my neck. I had gone all the way down. The earth beneath me barred me forever, but you brought my life up from 
the pit. I remembered you, and you are the one that brought me out of it. One pastor has said on commenting on this passage of Scripture that the verse that came up to him over and over as he read this is Romans 8, 28. And that's a verse that most of us know, most of us have heard, most of us can, can, can think about. You may not be able to recite it, but you know what it means. And a couple of weeks ago when I talked about the fact that not everything that happens is, a, is necessarily uh, happens for a good reason. That there are times when we are disobedient, when the enemy coaxes us into doing things against God's will. And I, I talked about that, and somebody came up to me after the service and said, but I believe that God can use even our mistakes. And I said, I agree. Because Romans 8.28 says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Here's the truth. God can even take our royal mess-ups and turn them into good. God can take what we've messed up and make them into something that's a lesson for others that's good. How many of you have ever messed up in life? Let me see. All right? If you didn't raise your hand, you just messed up in life, so raise your hand. Right? We've all been there. We've all made mistakes. How many of you have messed up this week? Let me see your hands. All right. If you didn't raise your hand, you messed up again. We've all messed up. We do it on a regular basis. We say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. Now, many of us don't mess up as royally as Jonah did here, but sometimes we do. And here's one of the most amazing things I've found. It's not that our sin is good, not that God enjoys it, but we serve such a mighty God that even when we sin, He can take our junk and turn it into something great. He can take other people's junk in our life and turn it into something great. Sometimes life is of our own choosing like Jonah where we have stuff that just happens all the time and we go to the Lord in prayer and despair and say, look, and I messed up. I'm coming to you in prayer. But sometimes the despair, sometimes the problem comes when it's not even our doing. I was reading a couple of weeks ago a story that happened overseas. And this delivery truck was driving down the street, and for some reason, nobody really knows that his cargo exploded. And as people were driving, they started to notice that things were raining down on them. And they discovered soon that what had exploded was a cow. Now think about this for a minute. I don't know out of spontaneous combustion. I don't know explosion, all that stuff. But can you imagine driving down the road and junk just getting thrown on your windshield and you start doing that and you realize it's a cow? Sometimes in life, stuff gets thrown at us that we don't expect. And what happened with Jonah is this was something he expected because it was from him. But the truth is, whether it's our own making or it's someone else's, God can take our mess and turn it into something great. I mentioned I read uh, in Genesis this week the story of Joseph. And what amazes me about Joseph is every time something happens in that book, I marked it, I underlined it. Every time something bad happens to him, he says, the Lord sent it, it's okay. 
His brothers take him out to kill him, and they decide not to kill him. They throw him in a pit. They decide not to keep him in the pit. They sell him into slavery, and he says, that's okay, the Lord intended it. And he goes and works for Potiphar, and Potiphar makes him this great man, and he does an unbelievable job, unbelievable job. Gets it to where Potiphar's one of the most successful men in all of Egypt, and he gets there, and he starts to do that, and Potiphar's wife makes a false accusation against him. He gets thrown in jail, and he gets in jail, and he says, that's okay, the Lord intended it. He gets in jail and two guys are there and they listen to his story and they think about him and they say, listen, we won't forget you when we get up to back to the Pharaoh. And he says, oh, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. He gets up there. They forget about him. He says, that's okay. The Lord intended it. He gets risen back up to where he was and he, he gets the, the country of Egypt to where they're storing up things for the famine that's coming. And in the midst of all that, his family returns to him and he plays all of these games with his family before he finally reveals who he is. And when he reveals it, they fall in front of him. They say, don't kill us. Don't do anything. And he says, that's okay. The Lord intended it. And what you intended for evil, God intended for good. We know that all things work together. When you come to the Lord and it's time to make that U-turn, you come back and you say, Lord, please, I need your help. I'm in despair. I need you to rescue me and rescue me with some purpose. Give me a reason that I can come out of this with a sense of hope and assurance of what you're going to do. Here's the third thing. You run back with praise. You'll see in his description here that Jonah over and over again talks about all that God has done, but he talks about continually looking toward the temple in verse 4. He talks about praising in verse 9. It says, But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will make good. What Scripture teaches is that we are to constantly be in a life of praise. Now, the truth is, many of us live our lives where circumstances dictate whether we praise or whether we condemn or whether we're upset or whether we're happy. And Scripture teaches that we ought to be on an even keel. That everything in life ought to be in a moment where we can stand in the, in the midst of it and praise Him. Now, here's a key point to understand. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we are to be joyful always, pray continually, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. On your handout, there's a little place for you to fill this in. And what it says is, the Bible teaches that we must be thankful in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. We must be thankful in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. The church I pastored in Ripley, there was a family that were real close to our family that were like grandparents to our children. And about a year before I came on staff there, so uh, about seven years ago, they had their oldest son killed in a car accident. And in the midst of all that was happening in that town, I, I didn't realize that when I came into pastor, but just very quickly they, they struck up a friendship and a conversation with us. And suddenly I realized that God was using some things I was saying and that God was using the circumstance to help them heal in some ways. And I remember one of the things 
that was real uh, that was really kind of a, a step that, that that helped us to move beyond some things and as we talk through them and help them to move on in some ways with their life is I said you don't ever need to be thankful for the fact that your son died you don't ever have to be praising God for the fact that your son died but it's important to remember God in the midst of it While I was there, we went through a campaign called 40 Days of Purpose. And one of the things we talked about in that campaign was that God sometimes uses our biggest difficulties to be our greatest ministry. And I'll never forget the Sunday that the mother in that family walked up on the stage and she gave her testimony about her son. And she talked about the fact that in spite of what had happened, she was excited because God was still there with her. And she praised God in the midst of it. That morning was a morning when many people in that congregation were touched in the midst of their own circumstances. And what happens to Jonah is, I don't believe Jonah would have ever said, Thank you, God, that I ran away from you. Thank you, God, that I went as far away as I could get. Thank you, God, for that storm. I'm glad I almost died. But I think in the midst of the belly of the whale, he realized that at that moment, he had to praise God. And I don't know what you might be going through, what might be happening in your life, but I can tell you this. Nothing can be happening in your life that is so severe that it can take away your praise for the one who has died for you. Now, that's tough sometimes, and I know that that sounds, you know, almost too, too exciting and too wonderful, but the truth is that Scripture teaches that part of what gives us hope is in the midst of that very real despair, we can still praise the God whom we serve. Here's the last thing when you run back to God. Run back with humility. Last verse of chapter 9, excuse me, the last part of verse 9. The very last sentence of that verse just says a real simple thing that says, Salvation comes from the Lord. This is what happened. Jonah, when he heard God's call on his life, he ran the opposite direction in his own strength. We talked about paying his own way. And as he went in his own strength, in his own way, he was trying to do it completely on his own. In his own abilities, in his own talents, in his own giftedness, he was trying to do it all on his own. And at the end of chapter 2, in verse 9, when we get to the end of this prayer that will eventually get him vomited out of the whale... We have this wonderful point when he says, salvation comes from the Lord. What that basically means, what he's basically saying there is, there is absolutely nothing I can do to get myself out of this situation. I need help. And I don't know if any of you have ever found yourself in the midst of a situation where you don't know how you're going to get out, where you don't know what's going to happen, where you're in such despair you said, I just need help. 
But what happens in the life of this man, what happens in the life of Jonah is he gets to the point when he finally says, Lord, you are great, you are holy, you were the one that rescued me, you're the one that brought this fish, you're the one that got me into this place, and I realize that there is nothing I can do. Salvation comes from the Lord. I am helpless, I am humble. Lord, you do whatever you want to do. And what happens in that moment is he comes to the Lord with real humility. One of the things that I truly believe is that one of the reasons we don't see God move in churches around this country today in many cases is because the people are too proud to admit they need God. Now, I know that in a church, that's where we come to say we need God. But most churches are still operating on what they can do on their own. The reason that we don't see the aisles have more people come down when invitations are given is not because the Lord isn't speaking to some of you in this place. It's because some of you are too proud to admit you need God. And what I believe about Jonah is that the entire first two chapters of Jonah are about a very proud man. A man that was going to do his own thing, go his own way, live his own life. And suddenly God gets a hold of him and it takes me in the belly of a fish. But at the end of that time, after three days and three nights, finally he says, salvation comes only from the Lord. It is only in you that we can find trust. I am humbled here today. Lord, I can't do a single thing about it. And it is at that moment that God shows up and begins to move. Some of you in this room, God is speaking to this month. As we've talked about Jonah, as we've talked about what God wants you to do, some of you are having something in your life that you feel God is beginning to ask you to do, that God is beginning to challenge you to do. Maybe it's to repair a relationship. Maybe it's to, to do some things differently within this church. Maybe it's to give up some things that you're doing outside the church. Whatever it is, God is speaking to you, but your pride is not allowing you to obey. And this morning, the question I have for you is, when will you get to the point that you finally realize that the only way you can ever see God really move and ever see your life have meaning and purpose is to give up and say, God, it is time. I am going the wrong direction. What will be your wake-up call? And when God brings it, will you run to Him in prayer? Will you run with hope? Will you run to Him saying, God, I I realize you can do all things in my life, and Lord, I come back to you in this prayer, living in hope of what you're going to do. Will you praise Him with your life? And will you come with humility? This morning for some of you is an opportunity to come back to God. And it will be a big step of faith and obedience to do it. But the question is, will you? Let's pray together.